This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. it once or twice i don't get super into this case but i know that it has sort of a following out there and a level of notoriety i think we mentioned it during the mcdonald case several years ago do you follow like the the manson stuff i don't yeah i I was wondering about that. It popped up in my crime feed and I know everyone is going to be talking about it. And I honestly have very little to say about it, but Leslie uh, Van Houten has officially been paroled. And I thought that was interesting because she's been the subject of a lot of contention in terms of would she be released? Would she not be released? For those of you who don't know, Leslie Van Houten was a convicted murderer when she was considered to be a member of the Manson family. At the time, she would have been known as Lulu, but she was one of the people arrested and charged in relation to the killings of Leno and Rosemary LaBianca. She was convicted and she was sentenced to death, but there was a ruling from the California Supreme Court in 1972 related to the death penalty, not specifically her case, the People versus Anderson. And that ruling resulted in her death sentence becoming a, a commuted sentence to life in prison. And then her conviction was overturned in 1976, and an appellate court decision granted her a retrial. The second trial that she had ended with a deadlock jury, so it was considered a mistrial. And then in 1978... She was tried a third time on multiple counts, and she was convicted of two counts of murder and one count of conspiracy. And she was sentenced to this really weird sentence of seven years to life in prison. So it wasn't anything like life without parole. It was really just this sort of forever living in in sort of a purgatory where she was eligible for parole after a certain amount of time, but not necessarily uh, going to get parole. Right. It was a situation where her culpability was, uh, it wasn't as great as, you know, some of the other people involved. Right. And I feel like, uh, I can't really remember, but I think she may have like confessed to what she did. And I don't know that it really amounted to her, actually personally physically murdering somebody but she was there and that was their intent right but i think that that's kind of how that skewed a little bit yeah there are a couple of sets of murders attributed to the manson family if i get into all of that we're going to go down this long rabbit hole so i'm just going to focus on the labianca murders august 9 1969 with Tex Watson, Patricia Krenwinkel, Lindia Kasabian, Susan Atkins, Clem Grogan, 
and Charles Manson, they went to the house of Rosemary and Leno LaBianca. Manson goes into the house with Tex Watson, and that leaves Atkins, Grogan, and Kasabian outside. But Krenwinkel, Van Houten, which is the person we're talking about, and Tex, they go in, and Tex Watson is the murderer of Leno and Rosemary LaBianca. He supposedly... There was this other thing that happened where, where Manson and Watson send others over to the wrong house, and there's this whole thing that happens, and that's sort of irrelevant to uh, Leslie Von Houghton's case. But Leslie Von Houghton and another woman held down Rosemary LaBianca as Tex Watson stabbed Leno. So they're holding Rosemary down so she can't help Leno. Leno gets stabbed, and then Tex comes over, and he stabs Rosemary. And he gives Leslie a knife and orders her to stab the woman. So she is basically stabbing a dying woman 13 or 14 times. And then uh, Patricia Krenwinkel, who also gets involved in this, and, and they are stabbing on her as well. So in 1971, she did testify that she took one of the knives and then Patricia took one of the knives. And they were actively involved in, in the last part of uh, Rosemary LaBianca's murder. And I think that's why the sentence is, one like, I think you said it's like seven years to all eternity of purgatory. Yeah. Right. It's a, it is strange, right? Uh, yeah, it's for murder and then being sentenced to seven years. And so if you consider, we hear all the time, like, oh, the system's broken, right? And in all of the Manson cases, uh, all the the people involved in those murders uh, that went to trial. It's interesting because this actually illustrates sort of the other side where like there was chance after chance after chance to make sure that like she was in fact guilty. Right. Yeah. And so uh, to me, it's always fascinating to sort of uh, see the other side of the broken system, which is that a lot of resources were used over the years. I mean, cause she started out like with a death sentence that was commuted. And then, you know, now all these years later, she is finally going to be paroled. Yeah. She's being let out. And you know, when you get in, so th- this is a cult situation. Like whether you, you know, believe the Manson family is a cult or not, they definitely wanted to be a cult. There's a, a commune involved, a lot of, drugs involved they have a clear pathological narcissistic leader who is essentially telling them what to do and and that would be probably as specific as when they could eat uh what they could eat when they could sleep how they could sleep who they're having sex with there's lots of drugs being given out here and and I'm not defending anyone in this situation, but I will say that if you, you know, just look at her age, this would have been a girl who was around 18, 19, 18 to 19 years old while this is going on. And that's a very impressionable time. The idea overall here is that her overall culpability is in question. But I will say some people have come forward that were also members of the, the Manson family, including Barbara Hoyt, who she passed away a couple of years ago. She had basically stated that Leslie was a leader of sorts. I don't know how true that is. 
I think that uh, I don't think there were a lot of leaders in the in this situation because when you have uh, this type of quote family situation, typically you have sort of a, a patriarchal figure who is out of their mind, and we clearly had that, and then. You, you might have some sort of older brother figures who are vying for leadership roles. But even in the, you know, the, the life and times of, of what was going on here, I do not believe that there were actual female leaders in the Manson family, personally, from what I've read about them. Um, and it, the other problems that you get into here, the Manson family is pretty awful situation overall. They definitely are all out of their mind and headed to terrible, terrible end for uh, multiple victims. But I, I, I will also say that the prosecution side of this was also not good. And you end up in, in a situation where just got like evil versus evil in, in pretty much all of the situation. Somebody's got to sort of dispense some justice. I think the, the seven-year sentence to life is absolute torture in and of itself and starting in the in the 70s and the 80s you know people have come along and they've sort of rallied for certain members of uh the manson family and leslie von houten has definitely uh been one of those people that have been rallied for she's been denied parole many 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 times um i think the 20th time was sometime in 2013 or 2014 so you know we're 10 years later several more times down the line. Um, I, to, to her credit, she had long renounced everything that went on with the Manson family. And she had uh, she had been very thorough in uh, describing how she would have done things differently. And she was very open about what she did. That doesn't make her better or worse. Uh, she's just, you know, just one person caught up in this sprawling uh, and to be quite frank, batshit crazy story. Uh, that sort it of- really is. It <laughs> really is batshit crazy. And it's so incredibly sad. And, you know, I never had, I, I've never been into this case ever because it just is so far removed from just, I mean, it's just stupid, right? It's stupid that it happened to begin with. And, you know, it's very sad for all the victims. But, you know, she did do 53 years in jail, she did. She did. And I, you know, all things considered, the fact that they put her up for parole, in my opinion, means that there was some expectation of possible rehabilitation. And I think when you've got something sort of the size and notoriety of the Manson family, killings, the trials, um, all of the the movies and the fact that it's set in, you know, sort of Hollywood to begin with, the case has so much notoriety that uh, probably she was, if she's ready for rehab now and to be, I mean, she, if she's considered rehabilitated now and ready to be let out into the world, it's probably been that way for 10, 15 years. And really it's the shadow and the specter of Charles Manson and, and the insanity of the Manson family that has kept her in prison. Right. And I don't know how fair that is, but her last, her five previous bids for parole were blocked directly by the governor, which my understanding of that is, and it may not be, I might not be right, but that means like she actually got a, re- a recommendation, right? Correct. correct and yes. then the governor shut it down. 
And um, so that means like it, she had advanced past the point of not being able to get through the, you know, pardon and parole board recommendation. And the governor was shutting it down. Now, the last time she was blocked for parole was in 2020, and it was actually overruled uh, by the California Appeals Court. And so I don't know how that plays into her getting out of jail yesterday. Ultimately, I believe the governor, let's see, is it Gavin Newsom? Yeah, it's, it's Newsom. He, I think that he had just sort of given in to not attempting to block it again. Yeah. It, so it becomes sort of like a political stunt after a while. It is. And, you know, po- uh, politicians are constantly trying to save face, right? Yep. And nobody wants to be the governor that allowed, uh, that didn't block parole for one of the the Manson group, right? They don't. And it goes back to April 2016, Jerry Brown. So she first gets recommended for release or parole in April 2016. And at the time, California Governor Jerry Brown, he said, there is no way we can let her out. She is still an unacceptable risk to society if released. And that it's exactly what you said. You know, they don't want to be that person that lets her go. But the truth is, at that point, she's going to be roughly 67 years old. She's 74 now. So I don't see how she's going to be. And she's renounced all of that, like openly and, and actively said that, like, she understands. Right. And she'll go, you know, to a halfway house to begin with. And then uh, she'll be on parole. And, you know, you have to think about it. Uh, She has, uh, I'm sure she's done stuff in prison, but she has no life experience really. Right. Right. Um, And so 53 years later, she's getting out. Now, something I read kind of irritated me. I believe it was maybe her attorney had said it, but it was like, uh, quote, she has to learn to use the internet. She has to learn to buy things without cash. The attorney told the AP, quote, it's a very different world than when she went in, end quote. And I felt like that was a little bit of overkill. Like, Oh, it definitely is. Yeah, like, all of the, I, both I sides of this are full I of I don't really care what she has to learn how to do, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of like, really? I mean. She I was in prison. She wasn't on a foreign planet. <laughs> And, and she was in prison for like the, you know, some of the most violent and senseless crimes that have ever been committed in our country. Right. Because uh, right. these, the murders that occurred by Charles Manson's family or whatever, they were so ridiculous. All of it was ridiculous. And it, it just, it's one of those things that, I mean, without there actually being people dying, it, I would just roll my eyes at it. Right. Yeah. Um, because it was just so stupid, but you know, we'll see what happens. I, actually, I doubt very seriously. We'll see what happens with her. I think she's going to disappear into oblivion. However, somebody brought this to my attention. That's the only reason I'm aware of it today. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't care less about this. Somebody made the comment that she was going to make a fortune off of telling her story, Right. I don't know if you've seen that or not, but there's been banter because she has like, you know, nobody's going to hire her at 73, not to mention she's probably not physically able to work a full-time job at this point. Well, so when you were, were you talking to someone or you were reading something and they said she'd make a fortune? 
I was reading the comments on something. Somebody told me about this, and I pulled it up, and then I was reading the comments, and people were talking about, like, because a lot of people are mad that she got out. A lot of it, and honestly, I mean, I'm not going to go one way or the other here, but a lot of that stems from the narrative of the Manson family saga, right? It does, yeah. Um, And, you know, it doesn't make any difference. All the dynamics that go into play, it was like they were just all crazy and they were all, you know, murderous lunatics. And, you know, we're not, it never comes up that like some of these people were underage and they never should have been in that situation to begin with or whatever. And so it stirs something in people, right? Yeah. Uh, The murders for the most part were... They weren't completely random, but they were like something that wouldn't have made any sense to anybody, right? Yeah. And so because of that, that instills fear in people. And that that narrative story has spilled over, you know, all these years later, right? Yeah. And people keep it and it and it's also one of the most infamous cases that there is. Uh because of uh, Charles Manson and the character he created for himself and sort of the way that all went down because it's so bizarre, right? Yeah. And it's it's actually kind of hard to believe that this, you know, loser guy convinced all these people to do this stuff, right? It really is. And so because of that, it sparks all kinds of these weird feelings that people don't necessarily realize they're there until they're reading an article about a woman who, uh, you know, did these things at 19 and now 53 years later, she's getting out. Right. And so people just kind of fly off the handle because I was reading these comments. I was thinking, yeah. And you know, I don't comment and respond. I don't have an opinion one way or the other really about her getting out of jail. It is interesting. Right. I just feel like it's a part of history. That's the main reason I wanted to talk about it. And I kind of put it in here is because I feel it's a, it's a huge part of American history. Well, one thing I didn't see, did somebody else get out? Is she the only one that's gotten out? Of, of the Manson family? Yeah. Those people. So if you go back and like look through who is considered, I don't know how, how we run through like who's who there if, if you look at like the i guess we would call them the primaries because um, there's a list of crimes that are suspected to be manson related and then there's the tate and labiaca murders which are considered to be the core crimes um, in terms of like what family members have gotten out manson himself died in prison in uh, november of 2017 then if we were to like run through the whole list, I can't remember if Susan Atkins got out, but she was dying and there was a uh, compassionate release programming at some point for her. Somebody had done an application for a compassionate release and I'm pretty sure she was denied and died there. I don't think any of them in terms of the principles have been released. I could be wrong on that though. So I don't want to, I, well, I, it, it caught my attention, and I've never had anything catch my attention with regard to the Manson case, besides maybe Charles Manson's death. But I couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on anybody else being released. Of I guess what you were saying, the principal people or whatever, because you know not everybody that was part of the Manson family like went and committed these murders, right? There was a whole thing. There was a whole. uh, what cult compound where people lived or whatever, and so there was just the groups of them that. 
did these acts. And I, I don't recall seeing anybody. Uh, I know they, that several of them have applied and been denied. Well, there were people that turned like state's witness that got short sentences and they've been out for years, but there were people that never went to prison that depending on what you consider to be the Manson. I mean, at one point I I read as much as I possibly could about the Manson family. And I realized that I was reading a lot of garbage. It is a lot of garbage. Um, But I, so basically I'm just talking about the people who were actually convicted of murder. No, this is like this. She's um, uh, Linda Kasabian. She did get out, uh, but I, like I think it was like literally either right after or uh, like like she testified for the prosecution and, and essentially was given a, like a, a pass. Um, I don't know that for sure off the top of my head, but there were several of them that like never go to prison. But there's I don't think anybody else has. So, uh, yeah, Linda Kasabian, she was granted immunity. Uh, right, that's what I thought. So this is a first. I don't know that anybody else is alive. I would have to look into that more closely. But um, so anyway, yeah, it is. It is historical news that I mean, you're like like I said earlier. This is a woman who was originally sentenced to death, and through fifty three years of court proceedings, she's now uh, out on parole and she'll be on probation and living in a halfway house. And I'm sure that the headlines on the Los Angeles Times will read uh, Manson family member back on the streets. <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, 53 years later. Yeah. This sort of ties into to crazy things that I wanted to cover. I had been reading about this really old series of bank robberies and I, I wanted to have a moment where we weren't talking about like these predators that might or might not be predators type people because we've had like with Bobby DeLong and like some of the other serial killers we covered, Bobby Jack Fowler, uh, uh, John Arthur Aykroyd. It's been like a pretty gory spring into summer. And um, I figured I would just sort of focus before we uh, go down that path again. I figured I would focus a little bit on just like a crime that wasn't like that, like super gory. Uh, There were two of them that I pulled up. One is like it's a pretty short description. It has a uh, another notorious uh, crime group attached to it, and that is this 1930 uh, robbery in Lincoln, Nebraska. Now, this is a this is like a short thing. Um, if you go uh, looking for this, the Lincoln National Bank robbery, and it took place on September 17th, 1930, when a group of armed men went into a bank and they stole $2.7 million in cash and bonds and they fled with the help of a getaway driver. No one gets injured here. Over time, um, they recover a little bit of this money. It was the greatest American bank robbery for almost 20 years until 1950, January 1950. It was the largest. Yeah, it was, it was the. It was. I the, feel bad about saying anything about bank robberies is great. Okay, it was the largest uh, bank robbery in American history until uh, January of 1950. So the way that this goes down is uh, a stolen uh, Buick Master Six sedan, which is a pretty amazing car that was produced from uh, in the 1925 to 1928 with Iowa license plate. Uh, it stopped at 10.02 a.m. on September 17, 1930, in front of the Lincoln National Bank and Trust Company building. 
uh, located at the intersection of 12th and O Streets in downtown Lincoln. Five men dressed in dark business suits get out of the car. They leave a driver in the car, and the engine is running. One man acts as a lookout outside of the bank, and the other four men go inside. One is just inside the front door, and three men conduct a robbery. All of them are armed, and none of them are wearing masks or disguises. The robbers force the people inside of the bank to lay down on the floor. One collected people downstairs in the bank and then moved them at gunpoint to the main floor. The robbers then arranged to speak to assistant cashier H.E. Lineberger. And somehow, with some seemingly insider knowledge, uh, the reason for the demand to speak to him was that he was the only one who could open the bank vault door. Lineberger was not there, but it was discovered that the vault store's time lock had not been set correctly, which allowed them to access the vault. The men collected cash, silver, and securities from the vault and from bank teller cages, and they put it into pillowcases. There was a customer there who started to enter the bank, and she immediately left when she saw that there was a bank robbery in progress. She goes across the street to a little radio store, and she told an employee there to call the police. Two officers were able to reach the bank while the robbery was still in progress. Only one of the officers was armed. He was armed with a revolver. And the two felt they were no match for the man who was posted in front of the bank who was carrying a submachine gun. The robber motioned with the machine gun to indicate they should leave. So the police left. The weapons were used to intimidate the bystanders and they loaded the pillowcases of money and loot into the back of the Buick. Authorities were not able to track the car and later were not able to trace the car. Three of the suspects were eventually arrested of the six. Two of them were never identified. But a guy named Gus Winkler made a deal to avoid prosecution in exchange for aiding in the recovery of about $600,000 worth of bonds. And what makes Gus Winkler interesting is he was a member of Al Capone's gang. I thought that was a, an interesting way to sort of segue into the next story. Had you ever heard of this before? No, I hadn't. Uh, do you have any idea what two point, I know it was cash and bonds that were stolen, but let's just say cash for the, for the conversion purposes. But do you know what $2.7 million would equate to today? I don't know. Do you? I do. Um, so it, so it, wait, hold on. Let me guess. Dollar in 1930. What is that? 20 bucks today? Maybe. I don't know. The, I just did the calculation oh. on the total. But um, it would be $49,170,233.53 today. Holy cow. And so that is a – it's a average inflation rate of 3.17% uh, per year with a total cumulative increase of 1,721.12%. 1 which essentially means that today's prices are 18.21 times higher than prices uh, that were average in 1930. That's from the Bureau of Labor Statistics on the consumer pricing indexes. Um, so a dollar today would only buy 5.491% uh, of anything that it could have 
bought back then. I don't know if all that makes sense, but basically. So not, yeah, it does make sense. Yeah, yeah. So it's a $50 million robbery, basically. And that was huge. And so one of like the biggest things about this was nobody was hurt, right? Yeah, nobody was hurt in this one. So this is a Nebraska robbery. That's a long time ago, if you think about it. That's a very, very. In seven years, it'll be 100 years ago. Right. And that's what I was thinking. In 2030, it'll be 100 years old. And to me, it, it I don't always process things like, you know, a $2.7 million robbery happening in 1930. It seems just bizarre to me that that could have occurred. Uh, but it did, clearly. Yeah, yeah so this is uh, – I'll throw out there – that I guess I was off. It's not twenty dollars. You said it's eighteen and something per like um, each dollar from nineteen thirty is worth about eighteen twenty one. Is that what you said? Eighteen dollars and twenty one cents. Uh, no, that is the, so. Oh, anytime, anytime you're in a conversation and you say, "If I had, you know, uh, two point seven million dollars in nineteen thirty, that would be worth uh, forty nine million today." It's going off of the price increase, and so. Uh, today's prices are 18.21 times higher uh, gotcha. today than they were in 1930. And really, that's all that all those numbers are based off of. Because if you had $2.7 million in cash under your bed in 1930 and you pulled that out today, it would still just be $2.7 million in cash, right? It's about uh, the buying power, which you can right, buy right. Uh, so much. Like, so for every dollar, um, or let's say for every hundred dollars that you had to spend in 1930, you would only be able to purchase something that is roughly $5.49 today. Got it. Okay. I, I can't help but wonder. So, so that's going to be like a year after essentially yeah. the great depression starts the stock market crashes in 1929 and that money just went poof huh. i mean they, they got it back they got six hundred thousand dollars in bonds back but the rest of it was gone and what two was it two people got completely away with it uh i think it's actually two are never identified like at all but Gus Winkler and three other suspects end up getting arrested. I don't actually know what happened to them. I pulled it up on uh, the Lincoln Journal Star, and they had a little more information about it. Do you want to know a little more about it? Or Yeah, sure. The people that were arrested were Tommy O'Connor and Howard Lee. They ended up convicted and sentenced. Jack Britt, he gets tried twice, but he's never convicted. Gus Winkler... He had done a deal with the county attorney at the time, a guy named Max Tal. He was the prosecutor. And he arranges for $600,000 in bear bonds to be essentially recovered. The next year, Winkler ends up get, getting murdered in Chicago uh, in, a, in a gangland slang. But the the final two robbers, are they're never identified. Does, doesn't that make you wonder because of at least – uh, Gus's association with Al Capone, doesn't it make you wonder if the people who were convicted like really did the crime or if they were just taking the fall? It did. I, I had <laughs> I had been reading about some some other stuff in, in Nebraska, and I do wonder 
if that was not a complete setup and maybe they weren't related to it at all. But it seems like they would have been able to at least trace some of the cash, right? Which we don't have any idea if they really did or not, right? I'm under the distinct impression that, especially after the timing here with the Great Depression starting in 1929, that cash probably could have disappeared in a multitude of levels of well, uh, law enforcement's a, hands. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. If you've got a gangster that's really involved here related to Capone or in his organization, that money was gone the minute it left the door. Like as far as how it was going to be laundered, they probably had a plan for that. Well, no kidding. And I mean, it, I, I imagine so. I actually don't know. But, um, and you know, Gus Winkler dying the following year he's murdered. Um, that's not a coincidence. No, no. He made a deal and that was it basically. It costs $600,000 worth of bonds, right? Yep. It's really. You know, it, obviously, that's the mob mentality in a completely different way than I normally use it, right? Yeah. Uh, because it's, they don't care what it cost. That was a lot of cash. And so while there, I guess they don't directly tie it to it that I'm aware of, but while there were no casualties during the robbery, I guess there were casualties afterwards. And I would always question whether they actually did it because it seems like more money could have been recovered. Yeah, I, I would think so too. The, this bank robbery changed the course of a lot of how bank robberies are handled, particularly in Lincoln, Nebraska. So the first thing that happened was the chief at the time of police for Lincoln was a guy named Peter Johnstone. And Peter Johnstone was rapidly retired after this happened. The department in the next two years got their first official patrol cars. The entire force was armed with not only revolvers, but also shotguns. And a shotgun squad was organized. And uh, even today, according to one of the authors, uh, which I think was, yes, Tom Cassidy, who he now, he does some writing for the journal star out there when he was hired, which would have been 44 years later, 1974 at the Lincoln police department, detectives who would respond to the robbery alarms would take Thompson submachine guns and rifles with them. So that it changed everything. Like it changed a lot of how we handle bank robberies in general for them to suddenly be taking these Tommy guns and these uh, and the other submachine gun, that's a that's a big deal. Which leads me to like today's sort of like case, which is there's not a lot to this, but I wanted to talk about this case because I had remembered it. And last fall was the 20th anniversary of this case, and it had uh, it stuck in my head. Now this is actually in a town called Norfolk, Nebraska. It's about 120 miles north of the capital of Lincoln. Had you ever heard of this? I hadn't, no. I don't get super into bank robberies, but when I do, it's because something interesting has happened. And I think we've we've covered a few more from the perspective of fugitives with the different episodes we've covered over time. And this one, it has a couple of sources out there where you can go and read about it. I'm a little surprised that to some degree, this one is kind of forgotten about. The thing that shocked me here is how quickly it took place, sort of the aftermath of it all, and the outcome uh, of what they end up uh, getting from it all. 
And I think the best source for this, and you can correct me if you have a better one, probably the Washington Post. There's an old kind of facts only article by Robert Pierre from September 30th of 2002. I, um, I, I would go with that one. Yeah. This article pretty point blank. I'm just going to, I'm going to use reading some of them and we're going to talk about kind of what happened here. Title of the article is a nightmare in 40 seconds. It was all over so quickly, 40 seconds, police say that the robbers may not have gotten away with any money. They came shooting into the U S bank branch Thursday morning with handguns. And when they were done, Four longtime bank workers and a customer were dead. The alleged assailants have all been in trouble before, but those who knew them casually said they had mostly been small-time troublemakers. The sudden violence of the crime is what confounds the locals. And because some of the suspects are Hispanic, some within that community are worried that everyone will have to pay for the actions of a few. To the white community, please accept our profound condolences and sorrows, said Abraham Montalvo Sr. during a healing service held a night after the shootings. This community, under no circumstances, would never justify such a horrible act. Norfolk is a town of 23,500 people. Now it will be linked with the nation's deadliest bank robbery in more than a decade. There's a lot of disbelief, said Lauren Kellen. 33, as he visited the site of the shootings. You live in a small town and you don't think this could happen. You think Omaha, Chicago, anywhere but here. The violence didn't stop with the bank shootings. On Friday, authorities said state trooper Mark Zach shot and killed himself with his service revolver, apparently because he believed he could have prevented the shootings. A week earlier, he had stopped one of the suspects and found a gun. But Zach erred in writing down the serial number when checking its registration, and he did not discover that the gun was stolen. So the man that he arrested was released on bond. The signs of grief are everywhere in this northeastern Nebraska town. Flags are at half-staff. Signs at businesses and churches send condolences to the families. A guard is on round-the-clock duty outside the bank. People stop at all hours of the day and night to drop off flowers. They drop off posters and scrawled messages. Some are long and personal, others with a simple, single word. Sorry, said one note card. There are so few homicides here that residents and community leaders vividly remember the details of cases more than decades old. And while Norfolk, founded by German immigrants in the late 1800s, it's not so small that everyone knows each other. It's intimate enough that when six people die in two days, few walk away unscathed. Everybody has some connection, said Ivan Van Dyke, a Nebraska native who has lived in Norfolk since 1960. If it's not a kid on the soccer team, one of the victim's children, it's a church member. In Van Dyke's case, he knew two of the victims. One was a fellow member of the Knights of Columbus, and Zach attended his church. This morning, the Knights' long-planned charity breakfast quickly became a benefit for the victims. The pictures of the dead were lying neatly on a table at the Knights Hall as residents dropped their nations in a box and waited patiently for plates of scrambled eggs, hash browns, and link sausages. But while they came to eat, many people remained focused on the crime. According to authorities, four men were involved in the robbery. One man went into the bank shortly before 9 a.m. on Thursday as a scout, and three others stormed in minutes later and did the shooting. 
This is according to Norfolk Police Captain Steve Hecker, who testified in court on Friday. Yvonne Tuttle was a 37-year-old single mother of three and the first person killed. She had stopped at the bank on her way to visit her oldest daughter, Christine, who was at college in Lincoln. Also killed were four longtime employees. Lisa Bryant was 29 and a personal banker who had recently married. Lola Elwood was 43, the branch's assistant manager. She had dropped her two children at school before arriving at work. Samuel's son was 50. He was a teller coordinator and a father of two. Joe Mouseback was 42 years old. She was a mother of two who drove 50 miles each day from her home in Humphrey, Nebraska. Everyone is feeling the sadness of losing some really productive people, said Van Dyke, but our hearts go out to the families of the men who did this. Arrested and charged with five murders are Jose Sandoval, 23, Jorge Galindo, 21, Eric Fernando Vela, 21, and Gabriel Rodriguez, 26. Since the 1980s, Norfolk has attracted more Hispanic people, many who have come to work in nearby meatpacking plants. 9% of Madison County's residents are Hispanic, according to the 2000 census. But Norfolk Mayor Gordon Adams said the heritage of the men is unimportant. There's been a lot of concern about American and Hispanic relations, he said, but these were just bad people. They weren't immigrants. They grew up here. Police charged in court that the men planned the robbery more than two weeks ago, finalizing the details Wednesday night in a Norfolk apartment. After the killings, police said the three alleged shooters, Sandoval, Galindo, and Vela, broke into a house. They demanded the car keys to a 2003 Subaru and drove away. They later ditched that car, stole another one, and were arrested 70 miles away in O'Neill. Each had police records. Sandoval of nearby Madison had been charged September 13th with driving on a suspended license and marijuana possession. In 1995, he was sentenced to do 60 days in jail for assault and 10 days for theft. Vela, whose hometown is unknown, was arrested September 19th on charges of carrying a concealed 9mm semi-automatic Ruger. He posted bond the same day. Rodriguez, also of Madison, had been sentenced to six months in jail for robbery and assault in May of 1999. Galinda had a lengthy record that included assault and drug possession. Authorities say it was the arrest of Vela that apparently led Zach of rural Norfolk to kill himself. Zach apparently transposed two numbers in the serial number of the gun and failed to detect that the gun he confiscated from Vela was stolen. Had the numbers matched, Vela might have been kept in jail. A 12-year veteran, Zach had a wife and seven children from two marriages. He did have some problems, Adams, the mayor said without elaborating, but this was the final blow, you might say. Kevin Penner, 23, went to elementary school with three of the suspects. He didn't know them well, but said they had been in and out of trouble, mostly for minor infractions. I couldn't help but wonder what their motivations were, Penner said, as he visited the makeshift shrine at the bank with his wife, Sarah, and two young kids. A lot of people are asking the same question because the men shot so quickly upon entering the bank and because police did not find any money on them when they were captured. Adam said the city is planning a memorial a week from today for all the victims, but they're waiting until the funerals and family events are completed this week. A funeral for Tuttle is Tuesday, 
But on Saturday, her daughter, Christine, returned to the bank with friends. A freshman at Nebraska Wesleyan University, she said she was thinking how much she and her sisters, Virginia, age five, and Sarah, age three, will miss their mother. We just got her purse back today. She had money in it. Tuttle said as she looked over the condolence notes outside the bank. She didn't even need to be there. She was a good mom. I'm going to miss her. So what did you think of this? Well, uh, do you know how many people are on death row in Nebraska? I don't. Do you? I do. Um, it's 11. And uh, three of those 11 are uh, the shooters in this bank robbery. So Bella and Sandoval are there? Um, and Galindo, Jose, I guess? Jose Sandoval, Jorge Galindo, yeah. and Eric Avela. They've all been sitting on death row in Nebraska along with eight other convicted murderers and uh, I mean, they're all murderers, but they have a variety of other crimes. And there's some uh, political stuff here. Uh, the most recent ones are as 2017, and that was when the death row legislation was reinstated from it being overturned in 2016. And then, it's, so it's 2017 and 2013, and then all the other ones are from, you know, years back. Like in this case, it's 2002, right? And so that's uh, 21 years, and there's been several situations where uh, they've attempted it, uh, at least with Sandoval, uh, Jose Sandoval, uh, he went so far as to like, I don't know if he was issued a death date, but the announcement that a death date was going to be issued was made at least, right? Yeah. And I, that was in like 18 or 19, it seems like. So far, none of them have been executed. It So that is fascinating to me, right? That three of them, uh, three of the people involved in this completely senseless 40-second bank robbery. They did not get any money, and they killed five people. I don't know about you. I haven't really gotten into, like, the court uh, records and stuff on this, but have you ever heard any sort of motivation? Nothing. Nothing at all. So they wanted money. Right. But they went in shooting— and that doesn't really correlate with how bank robberies normally go, right? Normally, the gun is only a mechanism, right? It's a mechanism of control to get the money. Most of the time, in fact, when I first saw this, I was like, oh, I bet somebody like accidentally pulled the trigger. But that wasn't the case. They went in specifically shooting. And that's weird. That's a, a strange situation because typically the guns are just used for force to, uh, you know, coerce the tellers into doing what they ask. It doesn't even seem like they gave them the opportunity to do anything. They just went in and were shooting. Well, that, so it, that's sort of how the court records read. If you go like hunting through them, I want to say there were requests for change of venue early on, but when it comes like, these are really what I call guilt phase trials where, they just aren't, they aren't contesting, we didn't do it. They're contesting the, whether or not they should be put to death. So the attorneys seem to have the same opinion that you had. Galindo's theory was just the idea that the state would not be able to prove the statutory aggravators. That's what his attorneys were there to do as far as, they, they didn't want him to be executed, essentially. 
the layout for this, like in terms of facts. So the evidence showed that Galindo and Sandoval were the ones planning this robbery. And they had been planning the robbery for a month. Sandoval was considered to be the leader. And then Galindo went out and recruited Vela to be the third robber. And they recruited Gabriel Rodriguez, who was Sandoval's half-brother. And he was going to be the scout and the driver. So Galindo and Sandoval, they choose the date of the robbery because they knew that a weekly cash deposit from an armored vehicle was going to be made that morning. They chose this particular bank branch because it was small and the layout of the bank was compact. Basically, there was a double-door vestibule, a small mezzanine, and a customer counter with a drive-through service area just beyond the customer counter. That's it. That's all they had to deal with. There are a couple of small seated areas like on either side of the vestibule where customers could wait, but there wasn't much to this. So Galindo, Vela, and Sandoval, they wait in an alley. And Gabriel Rodriguez, he goes into the bank and makes a small transaction. He's communicating through a walkie-talkie to the others, and he tells Sandoval how many people are in the bank and what their locations were at the time he's talking. There's a surveillance tape that shows Galindo into the bank at approximately 8.44 a.m. Sandoval and Vela are right behind him. Galindo goes directly into the office on the left-hand side, which is the office of Lola Elwood, who's the branch manager. She's at her desk, and she's talking to Susan Stair and Cheryl Cahoy. Sandoval goes straight to the main counter where Samuel's son is, and Samuel's son is talking to Yvonne Tuttle. Joe Mausbach is working at the drive-thru, so she's directly behind Samuel's son. Vela goes directly to the right and into the office of Lisa Bryant, who's the personal banker there. Galindo says that as soon as they go into the bank, Sandoval got crazy and started yelling. And then he heard gunshots being fired, and his gun went off, shooting Elwood three times in the chest. Galindo claimed that the trigger on his gun was very sensitive. The surveillance tape they have of the robbery, if you want to call it that, or the incident, shows Sandoval brandishing a gun and standing at the counter in front of Son with Tuttle standing beside him. Galindo's back can be seen in the doorway of Elwood's office, and as Sandoval leans up against the counter, he motions Mouseback to come over to, to him. And as soon as she approached, this is 23 seconds after they'd been in this bank, Sandoval shoots Mouseback, Son, and Tuttle at close range in rapid succession, allegedly in response to Galindo firing at Elwood. So around this same time, Vela kills Bryant. He shoots her in the leg, and then he shoots her through the back of the neck, and he ends up getting her hand as well. Sandoval then jumps over the counter because he's going to attempt to retrieve some money. But as he does so, a customer walks in. And this customer, she later testifies, and she recalls that when she was walking from her car to the building, she heard a distinct pop off to the left, and then she heard another pop off to the right. But the way that it was happening, she thought that it might be construction. So her entry into the bank occurs 37 seconds after Galindo, Vela, and Sandoval have come into the bank. She testified that as she entered through the the second set of glass doors, 
It was silent in the bank, which was unusual. And she saw Sandoval leaning against the customer counter. He was smiling at her, but he had a gun in his hand. And it was not until she saw something move to her left that she fully registered that the bank was being robbed. So she just turned around and walked away. What she had seen was Galinda standing in Elwood's office. And Galinda actually, from Elwood's office, fired a shot at uh, this witness as she was leaving the area. It shattered the glass in the vestibule, like the entry vestibule, and it injured her. But she was able to get out into her car and to call 911. One of the bullets that he fired at her traveled across the street and hit the fast food restaurant like covering for their drive-through window. Now, in his confession to law enforcement officers, Galindo, who was the one saying sensitive triggers, he claimed that he shot this witness accidentally. He stated that he saw Vela pointing his gun towards the witness that was leaving the bank and that he yelled for, for Vela not to shoot and then his gun went off. The evidence at trial tended to demonstrate that Galindo had shot at her at least twice, but it showed him standing in what's known as a weaver stance, which is not consistent with an accidental discharge. Basically, he was standing with his feet apart and his gun out in front of him like to get the best aim that he possibly could. So after this witness gets away and, you know, this guy shoots the fast food restaurant, Sandoval jumps back over the counter where he had been like he'd been behind the counter trying to get the money. And the three of them just run away. Galindo briefly looks back to where. Cahoy and Stare are, they're sitting and they're like, their faces are hidden. They haven't been touched. He's considering in the video killing the last two witnesses, but somebody says, hurry up. And Cahoy said, uh, Cheryl Cahoy said that she heard one of them say, hurry up, and they leave. So Glenda, Vela, and Sandoval flee on foot because once the gunshot started, Rodriguez peaced out. And the two witnesses that were left, they were actually uh, sitting and talking with the bank manager, right? Yeah, they were They were in the office of Lola Elwood. Now, Lola Elwood is the one that uh, allegedly the trigger was very sensitive, and she got shot three times uh, in the chest. Right. And so um, I actually hadn't read that account. Uh, that's actually sort of what I pictured happening. Well, that's why um, I was saying this, because it times perfectly with what you. Now, I don't know about the what kind of stance did you say he was in where it didn't seem like he um, was accidentally the gun was accidentally going off at the lady that left. So the weaver stance. Weaver stance. Yes. The weaver stance is when I don't. I don't know. It's, a, it's created by a deputy named Weaver sometime in the 50s. I, I don't use it well because I'm left-handed with guns. But the first component is is, is two hands. So, so your shooting hand is holding the handgun. And then you wrap the support hand around your shooting hand. You extend your arms out in front of you. 
and you slightly bend your elbows and then you put your feet in a matching or an opposing like boxer stance, depending on how you're shooting. So for me, are you picturing what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. So he was standing there bracing to pull the trigger on the gun. Wait, but he was standing there like a bank robber would be standing there. Well, he, I don't know. It may be, it may be overthought. Yes. You, it, it, the idea that this guy actually knows what a weaver stance is and using it may be overthought. Because, um, so here's what I, when you just read that account of it, this is what I uh, immediately pictured, which is what I pictured to begin with until I read what I read. Um, I was always confused about the two ladies that um, were in the office with the the bank manager, right? Because they survived. But so if he truly did accidentally shoot her because his, you know, because he was making a demand, or I, I don't know like what the dialogue was or if there was any dialogue, but if he accident because the succession of things that happen, some of it is on camera, but for the most part, uh, it's not right. Just a few things are caught. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and so it's a really small space. And what I just read is sort of, it's not that everything is caught on camera. There's glimpses of it that sort of confirm the eyewitness account. Right. And then of course he, I believe it was Galinda actually pled guilty. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there's like there is a little more crazy to this, but yes, they're like. And so, to me, it would make sense that his gun goes off, he shoots initially, and then the other guys, uh, focusing on what their plan was, they immediately shoot the people right in front of them, right? Because right. it was a literally hair trigger response, right? Now that's how I see shootings and bank robberies happening it's literally the fact that you're standing there with a gun and something occurs that and you pull the trigger and you happen to have the gun pointed at the person now i'm not saying they're not responsible for it because they absolutely are but i'm saying like even in the moment the intent like they didn't care if they killed anybody but they didn't even accomplish the objective of why they went in there and they had done recon okay and they had so they had set up recon to figure things out to make the you know biggest take that they could from this bank and then they had you know they had set the driver to go in and and check out scope out the area like just right before they were to go in and rob it right and that makes so much more sense to me. Uh, he accidentally pulled the trigger and his gun went off causing this sort of chain reaction. Because why didn't he shoot the other two girls? I don't know. I think I think it was going so badly. These guys are not geniuses. And they are in deep at the time that all of this is going on. I don't, I'm going to, I'm going to go into the next part here and it might answer some of your question. We're going to switch over to a Norfolk daily news article and I'm going to tie this all together for you and uh, get your thoughts on this. This is actually from July 22nd, 2008 by a woman named Trisha Schultz. And it ties a couple of these guys into something else. I will say who did what here in this group I feel like is disputed by some of the aspects of this case. But here's what it says. This is out of Madison. The article is being written. Uh, convicted U.S. bank killer 
Jose Sandoval has been sentenced for his involvement in two other Madison County murders. Sandoval is 28 at the time, so this is this is years after, this is six years after the bank robbery, has been sitting on death row at the Tecumseh State Correctional Institution. He gets transferred to Madison County District Court Monday afternoon, so that's right before this uh, July 22nd article pops out, where he was charged with two counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of Travis Lundell, 19, and Robert Pearson, Jr., 23. Uh, Sandoval pleaded guilty and was sentenced to life in prison in an hour-long hearing before Judge Patrick Rogers. So that's like the fastest murder trial ever, plea deal, whatever. Pearson had gone missing in January of 2002. So this is before the U.S. Bank robbery. Madison County Attorney Joe Smith said that his death was drug-related and that Pearson had been involved in the purchase of illegal drugs and he owed money. Although Smith said that Pearson's death was non-accidental, he did not disclose the manner in how he died. In July 2007, Sandoval contacted Smith's office, and he took investigators to the rural location where Pearson's body was found. Pearson had been buried in a two-and-a-half-foot-deep grave in a wooded area on private property about 10 miles west of Madison off of Highway 32. Now... The other case, Travis Lundell, Lundell was reported missing in August of 2002, and his body ended up being found in 2003. Police said that he had been strangled and placed in a shallow grave near a secluded lake southeast of Norfolk. At the time of his murder, Lundell lived with Sandoval in a basement apartment in Norfolk. While investigating the U.S. bank murders in September of 2002, Smith said a, con- a connection between Sandoval and Lundell's death became clear. Evidence showed that in anticipation of the U.S. bank robbery, Jorge Galindo and Sandoval had encouraged Eric Vela to kill Lundell to prove that he was capable of the bank job. So they made it some kind of bizarre loyalty test. Although juries in the cases of Sandoval's U.S. bank co-defendants, Galindo and Vela, found it aggravators that that implicating them in Lundell's death, Sandoval's jury did not. Sandoval was transported to Madison on Monday on a motion for contempt of court for failure to pay fines and costs. But as soon as the hearing got underway, Smith withdrew that motion and proceeded to file the new information against Sandoval, charging him with the two murders, two Class 1A felonies. Smith said Sandoval had contacted him through separate letters and indicated his desire as a Christian to make these disclosures and make these pleas. In the middle of last week, Sandoval wrote a letter and wanted to resolve some things. He indicated that he wished for the family's sake to come in and plead to these counts and accept responsibility, Smith said. In exchange for his plea of guilty, Smith agreed not to file a notice of the aggravators in the case, meaning there would be no chance for the death penalty. He also agreed not to file any additional charges in relation to the two murders. Sandoval waived his right to a preliminary hearing and a pre-sentence investigation report and waived his right to appeal in either case. Both the state and the defense recommended life sentences, which was handed down by Judge Rogers. While Sandoval's conviction brings Lundell's case to a close, complete closure comes from the implementation of the death penalty, Smith said. And that will be done when the state legislator, the governor's office, show that type of commitment that's necessary 
to make the death penalty a meaningful thing in the state of Nebraska. The investigation continues into others who may have been involved in Pearson's murder because Sandoval did not act alone. It will continue until every single person that was involved in Mr. Pearson's death is brought to trial, said Smith. The investigation points to at least two other people, one of whom is in Mexico and one incarcerated in the United States. That does not necessarily mean those who are suspects in the case. We believe they are people who know something. And the investigation has not been narrowed down to only those two people. Galindo and Vela were not involved in Pearson's murder. So these idiots are just in over their head at every turn and twist they can make for themselves. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And I think that they're a really good example of how... So first of all, they didn't get anything out of this robbery, apparently. I don't believe they did. They really didn't. They didn't get anything. But second of all, this is how people can sometimes go missing, and the police know what happened to them, but it takes years to clear this up. Because all of this is taking place six years after this guy's been sentenced to – five years after this guy's been sentenced to death. You know, in 2007, he takes the investigators to Pearson's body, but – Lundell, his body had been missing not quite a year, maybe half a year, and found, but nobody knew what had really happened to him. So clearing all of this up came from putting this guy on death row. Which is crazy. Yeah. I feel so awful for the people that were just randomly in the bank that day. Right. It was one customer and the rest were um, employees and – I mean, clearly they didn't have great intent, right? Uh, But it's crazy to me that it went south as quickly as it did, and they reaped absolutely nothing from it. And that just makes it like a very sinister-type crime that's really hard for me to wrap my head around. Do you think, knowing sort of in hindsight, because they're picked up shortly after this robbery happens, but knowing in hindsight that they had killed Lundell and Pearson, do you think that affected how they approached the robbery that day? I think that uh, it could have, yeah. Um, they could have been, you know, they could have thought that they were bad dudes. But if, you know, if that's how you're going into something, if you're planning a bank robbery, uh, you need to be strategizing on, like, how you're going to get the money out and, like, that kind of thing. And the violence aspect of it is strange to me uh, that, you know, oh, you've got to kill this dude if you really want to pull this job with us or whatever. That's weird. It's a weird, that's a weird situation. And so, yeah, they might've had it in their mind. They had to be like tough. Right. But I, I genuinely believe that at least the, now they had it in them to do it. Right. But initially I think the gunfire could have started from an, like just a, you know, a sensitive trigger and a, in a twitch of a trigger finger. You know, I, I read that part because that's how the defense presents it. But like, after you find out that like other people are dead, I don't know about that. Like it could have still been that, but why test the guy? Why test anyone having them kill the roommate if you're going to be killing me? Like if you're not going to be killing people during the bank robbery? Yeah, I, I don't know. I I just I don't see what the point of killing the people immediately was if if they were there to rob the bank. Yeah. And it it kind of, it's, 
what I'm saying is bolstered by the fact that they didn't leave with any sort of amount of money that was ever shown to be missing, right? Yeah. And Galindo and Sandoval and Vela, all of their cases are continuing to be litigated even today. Yeah. And so three of them are, you know, they're sitting on death row, probably will be there. They were sentenced to sit on death row, basically, um, because there's a lot of uh, legislation about, you know, actually putting people to death there uh, that's going kind of back and forth. So who knows if they ever will be put to death. There are only 11 death row inmates in Nebraska. Yeah. I actually don't know if that's a lot or not. I mean, it's obviously not a lot, right? But I don't know comparatively, like, I don't know what most states have. Oh, uh, you mean there's about 2,500 death row inmates, I think? In the United States? Yeah, I don't I don't know who they are, like, by state, but there's... There's probably 50 people in federal death row right now. Um, I'm guessing if you go through the military records, they got to have at least five or six that are not technically federal. And I, let's see, Alabama has 166 inmates. Arizona has 109 on death row. Arkansas has 30. California has 662 on death row. Idaho has eight on death row. Indiana has eight on death row. Kansas has nine on death row. Kentucky has 26 on death row. Louisiana has 57. Mississippi has 35. Missouri has 13. Montana has two. Nebraska has 11. Is that your number? Did you yep. say 11 or 12? Okay. Nevada has 64. New Hampshire has one. Um, North Carolina has 137, Ohio has 123, Oklahoma has 39, Oregon has zero because they never catch their serial killers. <laughs> Pennsylvania has 101, South Carolina has 34, South Dakota has one, Tennessee has 45, Texas has 184, Utah has seven, uh, Wyoming has zero. So those are, and then there's a number of jurisdictions that just don't have capital punishment anymore. Um, technically, there's 23, although you may have noticed I, I named there are some death row inmates in there that uh, kind of spill over. But, you know, the recognized non-capital punishment jurisdictions are Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, Maine, Minnesota, Hawaii, Alaska, Vermont, Iowa, West Virginia, North Dakota, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New York, New Jersey, New Mexico, Illinois, Connecticut, Maryland, Delaware, Washington, New Hampshire, Colorado, and Virginia, as well as Puerto Rico, uh, the Mariana Islands, Guam, D.C., and the Virgin Islands. And regardless, I mean, there's not a whole lot of executions actually happening, so. No, there's not at the moment. Occasionally, Florida gets a little crazy down there sometimes, Texas, but. I just wanted to cover this uh, case because I thought it was interesting. So I um, I had pulled this up. You got anything else to say on any of this? No. Um, I feel like uh, it's a very sad case. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time.